listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, welcome this morning to our final sermon in the book of James. Uh, I'm hopeful and uh, anticipate that this has been a, a series lacking nothing that the Lord has begun to do some maybe deeper work in each of our lives, some levels of cultivation that maybe show itself in some levels of awareness of things that have taken place in our hearts or things that maybe have festered underneath the surface or, or even places of encouragement we hear and James 1, James tells us that there seems like a, an unrealistic expectation. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials and temptations. And you're like, let's be serious, right? But he starts right off the bat just giving us this indication that, that, that joy is a fruit of the work of God regardless of the season in which we're in. Um, so I'm hopeful that as we conclude our series, Lacking Nothing, in James 5, verses 13 through 20, I would encourage you to open your Bibles and turn there. We would begin to uh, anticipate uh, and even maybe prepare more for the work of the Lord in our lives. The Pelicano is an ocean freighter. It became notorious in 1986, although it was made and built and had done many sea voyages before then, but 1986 was the year that it became known for what it was known for. 1986 in Philadelphia was the Democratic National Convention, and in the process, right after the National Convention, there was a sanitation strike. And so all the sanitation workers had decided to go on strike. And so what ended up happening in the city of Philadelphia is there was just an enormous amount of garbage that began to pile up on the streets and neighborhoods of Philadelphia. What they decided to do is uh, do their best to take care of this trash before the sanitation workers were able to come back on. And so they ended up burning a huge amount of that trash. And what they did is they put uh, equivalent to about 28 tons of this burnt, toxic trash on the Pelicano. And in the process of that, they weren't sure what to do after that. So this ocean freighter left the port of Philadelphia and began its voyage to who knows where. For the next two years, from 1986 to 1988, the Pelicano wandered the oceans from sea to sea with no destination. Carrying 28 tons of toxic garbage, there was not one country that wanted to come and allow it to port. There was no place for it to find rest and get rid of the garbage in which it was carrying. So for two years, this ocean freighter wandered the ocean with no destination. It was only allowed into port to refuel and then head back out to sea to just wander. It carried 28 tons of toxic garbage for two years. No destination, no design, just hope that somehow something or someone was working behind the scenes to relieve the Pelicano 
of its toxic trash. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that many of us as believers feel a lot like the Pelicano. There are many times where we find ourselves carrying an enormous weight, a toxic reality of fear, anxiety, or past history of challenges and frustrations, areas of sin and habits that have affected and infected so much of our lives. We make our way and wandering around the world and we'll come into church to refuel, but then head back out with everything we came in with. All of the toxic stuff that is weighed heavy on us is something that we carry on a regular basis, and there certainly is a desire for rest. There's a longing for a way to get rid of those things that have somehow in some way influenced us in so many different areas, whether it's self-inflicted wounds or wounds of others, hurts, habits, hang-ups, all of these places are things that just have affected our whole perspective of life. We make our way into church and we refuel. But then we head back as though little, if anything, has really been changed. Many of us, maybe even myself included, are a lot like the Pelicano. We wander the world in hopes that there is something or someone working behind the scenes to relieve us of the toxic garbage we carry in our hearts. That's where James takes us this morning in James chapter 5. It's intriguing to me as we walk through this study that James started off with this humanly unrealistic perspective that somehow we can face the enormity of the sufferings that you and I encounter in the world as unique of every one of those sufferings that they are. Like your sufferings are different than mine. You've encountered different pain and woundings and sin and hurts and habits, things that have affected and infected your life in different ways that I have. But James is universal in his statement. He says, brothers, anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ... Count it all joy when you face trials and temptations, for the testing of your faith produces perseverance and endurance. And it seems unrealistic from a human perspective because it is. In reality, the goal is not for you and I to come to the end of the study of the book of James and say, all right, somehow I've got to muster up enough strength to look at the garbage and the toxic waste in my heart and figure out how to find joy in it. That is not the solution of the book of James. What James tells us is that in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we're lacking nothing. And in that lacking nothing, one of the things that we must unequivocally become aware of is that in our flesh, we lack. We, we have an inability and a lack of capabilities to handle the very things that have been done to us and that we've done to ourselves. The sin that we've committed, the regret and the hangups, the anxiety and the arrogance that have affected so many parts of our life just continue to breed and, and they bear their own type of fruit. We can become bristly or isolated. We can distance ourselves from relationships or become frustrated and angry with things not working out the way they thought we thought that they would. Even at times, we become incredibly frustrated with the church itself. We wonder how come the church hasn't helped me fix what I'm going through. We're disenfranchised and disappointed. Many of us have lived the Christian life like the Pelicanos wandered the seas, <laughs> carrying this stuff, only making its way into port to refuel, and then back at it again. So James moves us through this journey of these five short chapters and ends with a 
stark place and a reality that I would have not necessarily anticipated had I just been hearing James for the first time. I thought that maybe he would just revisit the reality of what it means to be in a relationship with Christ and how essential that relationship with Christ is, but that's not necessarily where he takes us. He, he adds to the reality of our own individual relationship with a conversation about body life, a conversation fundamentally about the church. The essential nature of what it is and how it operates becomes the core basis for how James concludes what it looks like to partner and journey together through the challenges that you and I face in the context of life. The unpredictable places where we find ourselves meeting things that we never thought would happen. Those wounds that came out of nowhere, those hurts, those, those levels of grief that we could have never expected somehow in some way intrude into our life as though they were not only unwelcome guests and they are unanticipated, but we find ourselves often, if we're frank and honest with God, we blame him for. <laughs> if you really loved me, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. If you really loved me, then these are the things that I think would happen. And so what James does is he, he picks up and he takes this reality, this theology, this truth of the fact of what it means to know that in Christ we lack nothing. And then what he does is he anchors that in body life. He sits that on us as the church and says, as we think about the operational realities of the church and how God has called us to live amongst one another as we lack nothing in Christ, what he tells us is that the essential gift of how we experience the lack of nothing is through the gift of one another. That through the gift of the church, we are able to discover intimacy with Jesus on a deeper level. Now, let me be honest with you, that does not mean that things are easy in the midst of challenges with one another. And James is gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna drill into us that in so many significant ways. But there is a sense in which what he is calling us to is probably one of the most difficult callings that I imagine we can expect in the context of this life. And that is commitment to one another. That involves vulnerability. There's a sense in what James is doing is not just allowing us to look at the toxic waste in our life and wander around this world hoping that somehow in some way we will be freed from it and someday with some gracious work of God and then we can come back and port somewhere and settle down and life will be easy. He tells us that in the sense of authentic vulnerability, there's a deep and abiding knowledge of not just Jesus, but of one another. That the facade of doing life together and just allowing ourselves to see only a very uh, painted version of ourselves where people are able to interact with the good stuff but not see the bad stuff is not where James takes us in James chapter 5. There's a a knowledge and an intimate connection, so much so that there's an ability to anticipate and know that when someone is wandering and struggling, whether they say it or not, the people that are closest to them know. That there's an intimate, connected reality of what it means to see each other's lives in such a way that we are engaged in the struggle 
together. Certainly, James is going to tell us early on in this text that prayer is an essential element of what it means to partner together, but not that token prayer that I have said and that you have likely said too. I know it's hard, brother. I'll pray for you. (laughs) And then maybe around the dinner table or at night, we might utter a couple of words towards God on behalf of someone else, but the reality of truly praying for one another seems maybe a bit lost, if not maybe mildly muted. James is going to revamp, I think, our understanding, our deceptive version of what the church really is. And he does it with utter practical wisdom. So I would say that if we want to think about what biblical community is, what it means to have the church be the church, James 5, 13 through 20 is going to lend itself and lead us in that direction through practical steps of what it means to love Jesus and love one another. That there is a place where rest exists, and that rest is found in Jesus, who is the solution and the hope for every toxic reality that exists in our life. He's the instrument of change in the context of everything that we might struggle with, but in the process of intimacy with Jesus, it leads us to intimacy with others that we journey together. That's why we as a church and a body of believers here at Park Springs are convinced that we desire and have prayed for a few years to be a home for the hurting. We've asked God specifically, whatever junk, whatever mess, however broken it is out there, would you allow us to be that place where all of that brokenness can come in and find a home? Find a home where the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives, but that we are choosing to jump into the trenches of one another's lives and walk it out. James 5, 13 through 20 is the basis of why that is so essential. And certainly we have yet to do it perfectly. But the desire is to say with authentic vulnerability, the most scary thing that you and I can imagine is not just that we need intimacy with Jesus Christ because we certainly do. But the funny part or the challenging part of James chapter five is that we need intimacy with one another. You have not been designed to wander the oceans of this world alone carrying your toxic baggage, nor have we just decided to carry each other's toxic baggage. It means that we are carrying one another towards the place where we can find rest, as Jesus promises in Matthew 11. What does he say? Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And what will I do? I'll give you refueling and I'll just send you back out into the world and hopefully your toxic mess will just get better. No, he says, I will give you rest. Learn from me, he says. So James capitalizes on, I think, that reality of who Jesus is and tells us how this functions within community. If you'll look with me in James chapter five, we're gonna start at verse 13 and we'll finish up the chapter. Here's how he starts. If anyone among you is suffering... Fairly universal, and I imagine many of us here sitting in this church would raise our hand. And we say, yep, that's me, I'm suffering. Here's what he tells us to do. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him praise, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James moves us to this point and really jumps into our own specific journey because there's not one of us that isn't at some place in the first part of this text. There are those of us amongst us that would say we are suffering like we've never suffered before. We've felt like we've learned life lessons and yet we continue to meet hardship, obstacles, and challenges. And so James says, if anyone's suffering among you, let, let, let him pray. Let him seek the face of God and know that God is attentive to the prayers of his people, that he cares about hearing from his kids, and that those prayers aren't just somehow things that are uttered in the silence of night or made their way into this vacuum of the earth where no one hears, but God himself is attending to the prayers of his people. Anyone suffering, let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praises. You see, that's the interesting mixture as he moves into body life, is that all of us in some way are both sufferers and singers. We're prayers and praisers. We are those that have our unique journeys, but in the process of those things, what are we praying for and what are we praising for? Let the one who is seeking comfort from God in the midst of affliction and suffering. Let him pray. Let the one who has received the comfort from God himself sing praises. So as we look at one another on the canvas of each other's lives, we're intimately connected in knowing what each other are walking through in such a way that when you know and are hearing someone pray and seek God's face, you know what they're going through and you're praying alongside of them seeking that the comfort of intimacy with Jesus Christ will be sufficient in the challenges that they face. And you're in. And those who are singing and praising and and grateful for the goodness and the work of God that they've found comfort in the challenges of life and they're able to elicit praise, you're you're recognizing because you, you know the journey that they're walking through. And so you can celebrate the praises of the comfort that had been given to them. There's a sense in which there's such an intersection between our own intimate walk with Jesus Christ and our intimate connection with one another. that The sense in which we think that we are just operating alone and that somehow in some way we, we get to just put on a persona or a facade about who we are, James begins to just blow that up and realize that in the rhythm of your life and mine, the scariest thing is not being known. It's not actually being known. That the authentic 
relational struggle of what you and I face in the context of our own struggles and our own sins and our own habits and our own wounds. There's, there's a level and an opportunity for those to, to, to come out and help us understand what we will receive when they do. In every situation, for every season, our immediate response is upward. <laughs> Instantaneously, as James leads us to handle how we consider counting it all joy, how we understand and appropriate that we are lacking nothing, he's saying that in every season, in every moment, in every circumstance of life, our first response is upward. Which means that at the expense of other things, that means it's not inward, how can I fix myself? And it's not outward, what's wrong with everyone else? It's upward. And it's not as though those things don't exist, that God isn't doing change in us, or that there aren't circumstances beyond our control outside of us, but upward gives us the perspective to deal with the inward and outward. Did you hear that? Upward gives us the perspective to deal with the inward and outward. If we start with the inward and the outward, what happens? The upward becomes not only difficult, but distorted. We then, if we look at the circumstances around us or what's going on inside, we either feel like an abject failure as though God doesn't want anything to do with us because we've absolutely and completely messed things up, or the circumstances surrounding us that God is trying to get our attention by doing all of these things, and so then we blame God for a lot of the things that are happening in our lives, and our view of God and our view of others becomes distorted. In every situation, in every season, our first response, according to James 5, is upward so that we can understand the inward and outward. The critical part of what James is leading us towards is that the first response to suffering, the first response to comfort, the first response to the things that are going on in our life is a recognition of the goodness, sovereignty, steadfastness, and love of God towards his people. Prayer for comfort needed. Praise for comfort given. All in the same congregation. <laughs> you're at a different stage in a different season and you're walking through unique things than myself or other people that you're sitting next to. But let me ask you this question and I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Does anyone else know? Anyone? I mean, does anyone else know the fears that you feel? The anxiousness that embeds itself in your heart? Does, does anyone else know, would anyone else that's in your life be able to pray specifically for the uniquenesses of your journey? Or is it just me and Jesus? <laughs> We're gonna figure this out on our own. God calls Christian community to be that that we would see as a gift of his sovereign care over our lives in such a way that it's a way that he provides for our lack. Certainly, we lack nothing in Christ, but the gift of the church is part of how God provides for our lack. Does anyone know? Does anyone know really? How come? What are we hiding? What fears embed our lives where we thought if someone knew what I knew about myself, they would want nothing to do with me? And so we pre-reject. <laughs> we reject for someone else so that they don't reject us first. So he moves us to wrestling with that question. And then he tells us, is there anyone among you sick? Is there a sense in which we are struggling with different 
maladies or issues as suffering embedded its way into our lives in such a way that it just feels like there's chronicness to our struggle. Maybe many of us find ourselves living in the midst of a chronic condition that will likely never go away. Constant and consistent pain, emotional or physical. We wonder if things could or would ever be different. I mean, what could prayer really do? And so now he moves us to the reality of the communal nature of God's gift towards one another. And that is, if, if you are, come and let the elders of the church pray for you. Why? Because the elders are more spiritual, right? They're closer to Jesus than you? No, not even remotely, trust me. No, I'm just kidding. Our elders are awesome. They're fantastic. But what I'm saying is that the sense is not, oh, we're just going to some sort of spiritual hierarchy. What we're saying is that those who have called to shepherd the flock under their care, those who have called to love and take care of the body, those who are walking their own journey, but those men who are called to be elders who are deeply loving and caring for the body desire nothing more than to intercede on your behalf and that you could find the guarantee that the leaders of the church would be praying when you couldn't utter a word. You're so spent, you're so exhausted, you got nothing left in the tank. And you know that Jesus is advocating for you on the will of God on your behalf and he's, he's praying to the Father and those things are taking place and there's some comfort in those things. But imagine the knowledge that you and I could experience in the midst of whatever journey you and I are in, from relational conflict to marital conflict to stress in life to financial problems, whatever it is, universally, any suffering at all, and you knew that the elders of your church were interceding for you when you couldn't intercede for yourself. They were praying when you couldn't pray. And you knew and had confidence that as you brought those needs to them, that it wasn't something that they came forward on a Sunday morning and they prayed for you in that moment and then they forgot about you the rest of the week. That there was a commitment to say, we lay hands on you and we are praying for the work of God. And, and whether we can touch you or not, we are continuing to pray on your behalf because we believe that Jesus is the instrument of change and we can't wait to partner our lives and it's a privilege to be invited in. Your suffering does not scare us. Your suffering does not scare me. My suffering, I hope, does not scare you. In the process, what we want is to say we believe that it's a privilege to be invited into the darkest moments of your life. Why? Because we have dark moments too. <laughs> and at the same time, we know that as we are able to be lights to one another, we are able to see the work of Christ function in each other's lives as we journey together through these things. Anyone sick? Come for prayer. Let us, elders of the church, pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and, and pray. And, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, I will tell you, obviously, as you read this, this is probably one of the more controversial sections in the book of James, right? Like, the elders will pray and you'll be healed, right? And if you're not healed, then one of two things happens. God is not listening or you need new elders. Right? I don't know. But in the context of this, that, that's not what he's lending itself to. right? James has been consistently and chronically reminding us of the need of what it means to draw ourselves to Jesus. And the greatest place is not 
full and complete healing in this world. Remember last week he said, look, continue to pray and continue to pursue and, and persevere in the midst of life because why? The, the Lord is near. He's coming back. Like the ultimate source of healing is deeper intimacy with Jesus, ultimately finding itself in an eternal rest in heaven. That is where God is taking you and me. So prayer certainly is movements of ways in which God can, can certainly heal, and I think that he still does, but some of the healing might not necessarily be the physical healing that we're longing for, but the emotional strength we need to persevere in the midst of chronic illness, 100%. In the challenges and the fear of wandering children, or those who have just seemingly departed the faith or fears and failures of, of relational conflict that's happened or issues of struggles and finances. Do those things go away instantly when you pray? No, but remember James 5.13. As you pray, there's a prayer and a seeking God to bring the comfort that only he can. And as he brings that comfort, that's the source of praise. <laughs> so we are both prayers and praisers in so many different aspects of life. And sometimes it happens in the midst of a day. <laughs> I pray that God would give me strength for the moments that I don't even know are coming. And then there are moments where I feel utterly weak and incapable of doing what the Lord has placed, and I pray. And does that mean that somehow in some way those solutions or those, those situations are fixed? Nope. It just means that somehow in some way the residing comfort of the Holy Spirit is at work in such a way that I can trust the outcome to Christ. There is comfort in that, healing and hope in that. Now he moves on and begins to deal with deeper heart issues. So verse 15, I'll read again. He says, and the prayers of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. The interesting aspect of how he dives down deep into this is not to say that every time we suffer is because of sin. We suffer and deal with brokenness around us, and so universally, certainly, sin is a product of suffering, but it's not just because you've sinned that you're suffering. But he is saying that at times, there is an aspect in which the challenges we face are because of sins and decisions that we've made. Steve Weatherford was a punter in the NFL, and he shared a story when he kind of came to faith in Christ, what it meant to process the difference between religion and relationship. He said, when I was 16, my dad bought me this Cadillac Fremont. G great car. All the kids wanted it, and I got to drive this huge Cadillac car. Driving down the road one day, not long after my dad had purchased me this vehicle, I saw my friend walking down the other side of the street, he says. So what he decided to do is flip a U-turn. And so he, in order to get those big cars to flip a U-turn, you kind of got to go right and then bang left. There's a car behind him, and the car thought that he was actually pulling over. And so as he pulled over, and then he swung, all he heard is this huge crunch of metal. And the first thought that came to his mind is, I've got to call my dad. He's going to be mad. That's religion, Steve says. Imagine the same situation in the same moment, the same experience, the same crunch of metal. And the response is, I've got to call my dad. 
He'll know what to do. That's relationship. So that's the reality of what I think James is leading us towards is this sense in which even in the midst of failures, even poor decisions on our part, even regrets or challenges or things done to us or things we've done to others, we live in this mixture of all of those challenges. And in the, in the context of all of those things, the reality of what James drives us to is that God wants to hear from his kids. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what failures or backlog of mistakes that you've made, no matter how dramatic it seems that your life is at this moment, God longs to hear from his kids. He longs to know and be able to appropriate. We saw last week, God is what? He gives us two qualifiers of who God is. He's compassionate and merciful. God, what a great sense of relationship that God calls us to in thinking that no matter what utter failures lay before us or behind us, the Lord Jesus Christ in his utter compassion and mercy wants you to be connected with him and that he longs to hear from his children. But then he takes it to a new place, a challenging place, a place where it's a bit more risky, if you will, <laughs> And the risk is not that you and I will receive compassion and mercy from Christ because he promises those things. The risk is, as we're vulnerable with others, how will they receive us? Here's what he says. He says, the righteous, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. We realize that we're righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness. And he says, Elijah was a man just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, so three and a half years, it, it didn't rain on, on the whole earth. Like, it wasn't just a location of no raining. This was three and a half years of universal earthly drought, all because there was a guy, Ahab, who was uh, worshiping uh, false gods and leading the people of Israel astray. And we know the story of Elijah, right? He's called by God, commissioned by God. He prays to God. Then he has this huge competition with the prophets of Baal. They are utter failures. The God of the universe consumes this sacrifice. God is who God has always been. He's worthy to be trusted. And the nation of Israel repents and changes course. He says, Elijah was no different than you and me. It's not as though he had some supernatural uh, perspective, that he wasn't just a man like you and I are. He was just used by God to display the character of God to the people of God, that they might know the power of God. And yet, you and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, possess that very same thing. And so he said, he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Like God did what he said he was going to do, and the access to those things is... God's people praying the will of God for the people of God as God carries out his will in the world. Here's the risky part. I want to suggest to you in verses 16 through 19 through 20, I should say, that God uses his children for his children. God uses his children for his children. My brothers, if any among, among you wanders from the truth, Anybody know any wanderers? You ever have anybody in your life that you were connected with that has wandered away from the truth? Like the Pelicano, the toxic waste of what they've been carrying has led them away from the body of Christ and led them away from Christ himself. How would you know? <laughs> the assumption in this text is that you actually 
know what the other person's walking through. It's not as though they don't just show up to church on a Sunday and you're like, oh, I wonder what's going on, or don't even notice. There is such an intimate connection between brothers and sisters in Christ that when one starts to wander, the other knows it. That intimacy is rich and risky. If anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I want to see if I can contemporize that a bit, maybe in our own day and age. I think what what James is communicating to us is that we are so connected with one another in our own journeys of faith that we're aware of each other's struggles in such a way that if someone wanders away, that in the process of that, the church pursues, that those who know the wandering pursue and, and continue to commit themselves to that individual that's wandering away from the truth of who God is and that their strugglings are taking over and they're continuing to show up and say, hey, you're not in this alone. Come back. And then it, whatever those sins are, however multitude they are, because one sin leads to another sin leads to another sin. And so it just begins to implode on itself. And that, that toxic waste becomes so dismantling and destructive that it feels like there's no hope and no way out. So what I want to suggest to you this morning and what James is getting at, when we think about the church, here's what he's saying. Every single one of us are going to be a wanderer or a pursuer, and it's going to happen to each of us all the time. You're not just going to be designated as a pursuer all the time because sin, suffering, and challenge will be an unwelcome guest in your life, and you will want to convince yourself that it's easier just to isolate. And you need, and I need people in my life to journey with me, to pursue me in such a way to say, hey, there's more than what you're experiencing now. Jesus loves you and I'm in. Like, this is not the direction you want to go. The trajectory that your life is on as you're moving away from Jesus is leading to less hope, not more. There's no solutions found anywhere but the cross of Christ. There's no hope found anywhere but the cross of Christ. And so come. And so the most dismantling part of those things is when someone pursues us, here's what happens. If you're anything like me, you get defensive. (laughs) If you're anything like me, what ends up happening is you say, who are you to tell me that I'm wandering, right? No way. I know what I'm doing. You're worse than I am. Your sin is worse. And we become so defensive and so uncertain that somehow in some way we're being judged rather than loved. We back up. Because I think we're so used to feeling like we have to have it together or that we have to compare our journeys with others that we end up missing out on the reality of what relentless, committed, pursuing biblical community looks like. And you are absolutely right. It is incredibly unsettling. It absolutely dismantles our perspective that we have it together. And our first response in the distortion of the truth is that someone is pursuing us because they want to judge us, which is not true. You're being pursued because the person pursuing you is compelled by the grace of Jesus Christ to help reorient your love for Jesus And you remember Jesus' love for you. In every situation, in every season, we are either a wanderer or a pursuer. One and the same. Both of those things are happening. And how freeing would it be to know that you are so known 
by other people in the body of Christ that are obviously in need of the same rescuing grace that you've experienced and that same rescuing grace that God is doing things in your life that you are being pursued in such a way that you can't run from the grace of Christ because not only will Christ chase you, but so will his church. (laughs) You ever been run down by the church? I think some of us have been run over by the church. But I wonder if being run down is something fundamentally different. I would hope that as we think about biblical community, what we're thinking about is that the basic assumption is that God is the author of our story. He's the one that's writing the narrative. Shame was taken care of on the cross. Embarrassment was taken care of on the cross. I know that my sins are significant And it took Jesus to the cross. And so what I anticipate from the church is the sense that I will be given truth. I will be pursued. I will certainly be made aware when the decisions that I'm making are harmful and hurtful and sinful, but not for the sake of judgment, for the sake of reorientation back to Jesus. Judgment has been taken care of on the cross. So I don't need to to judge you for your sin. I need to bring you back to Jesus. And in the process of those things, that's where Matthew 18 comes in and tells us, like, if there's an issue or something going on, talk to each other about it and deal with it. And you've won a brother over. But if someone has chosen, and I've had this happen in ministry, and it's the most painful thing that I've ever experienced, is that individuals have decided that they would rather love the temporary joy of the flesh than the eternal joy offered by Jesus, that they would choose their sin over their Savior. And so when you walk through the reality of what that means, you're saying, I I want you to know the richness of Jesus in your life and that this temptation and these desires are not where God is calling you to. Come home, be a part of this. And I've had people say, I'm good. You can do whatever you need to do, but I'm very happy with the decisions that I've made, realizing that the true and abiding faith in Jesus Christ never really existed. God calls us that those who are wandering to be pursued and that as we think about the Pelicano, as I conclude, I would invite all of us who are carrying things in our life that we know God is relieving us of those burdens, that that the shame and embarrassment of regrets and past decisions, hopes or chronic struggles that we're facing now habitual sin that has embedded itself in our lives. God is offering freedom through faith in Jesus Christ and through authentic biblical community. The greatest risk in the end of James chapter five is to ask us if we're willing to open up, to be seen for what's really going on so that we're able to be loved with the truth of gospel love that God has called us to give to one another. Would you pray with me this morning?